This doctor saved Michigan hospitals over $100 million. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Peter Pronovo. Dr. Pronovo is a professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in the Departments of Anesthesiology and Critical Care Medicine and Surgery and the Medical Director for the Center for Innovation in Quality Patient Care in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Pronovo, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you, Susan. Tell us about your famous checklists. Well, it's interesting, Susan. As you know, these Catheter-related bloodstream infections are a significant problem nationally, accounting for perhaps over 18,000 deaths a year and 2 to $3 billion in costs. And we had packaged a program to reduce those at Johns Hopkins that combined both rigorous science, that is what I would call the technical work of measuring these and summarizing the evidence, with a local culture change to get doctors and nurses to collaborate better. We didn't know, though, if we can put it on a large scale. That is, we can transport this from a one hospital program to doing it in across a whole state. And we partnered with the Keystone Center, which is part of the Michigan Hospital Association. We had a grant funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, a branch of the Health and Human Services in the federal government. And the results, Susan, were just astounding. We implemented this checklist as part of a program. And what the way it worked was that our research group helped to do what I would call the technical work. That is, we developed a database to measure these infections in a very robust way. We summarized the evidence on the checklist. But then we partnered with all the local hospitals to get their local leadership in changing their culture to get doctors and nurses to work together and to implement this. And within three months of putting this checklist in, their infection rates went from being at the national average to a median of zero, and they've stayed zero now for years afterwards. The program overall reduced these infections by about 70%, Susan, and it looks like it's sustaining now for up to four years. Why Michigan? Well, that's a a good question. It was a bit by serendipity. The Michigan Hospital Association formed what they call their Keystone Center. That's a a patient safety center. And they wanted to do some work, and they asked their members, and their members said, well, ICUs are a high-cost, high-morbidity place. Why don't we focus there? They spoke to some people who said, hey, you know, we like this work that Peter and his team are doing at Hopkins. Could we work with them? And so the executive director of the Keystone Center at the time, Chris Goschel, calls me and said, hey, Peter, do you think we could work together to put a program in a whole state? You know, and my eyes got wide about the the possibility to make a significant difference. And I said, well, you know, I'm an academic physician. I live on grants. And so why don't I submit this grant to do this to the federal government? And if it gets funded, great. That'll give us the money to go and put this in in your, in your state. And we got funded. The program was a wild success. And what it's done is to create this hunger within the state for valid quality improvement in patient safety programs. So we've, in many senses, created this very hungry monster that says, okay, let's develop the next program. Let's do something else. Because what they saw is the potential to bring people together to address a problem and do it in a really robust yet practical way. What response did you initially receive from Michigan Hospital executives? Interesting, Susan. I think there was some skepticism 
but curiosity. And I say skepticism because the reality is our quality and safety efforts don't have the best track record of delivering success in this country. You know, there's a lot of hype, there's often a lot of marketing, but if you look at what did you either buy for that or what what are the results and have they stuck, it's a pretty poor track record. We haven't really done well. And I think that they were approaching that with, yeah, okay, we've done a bunch of these other things before and and we're still having problems. What are we really going to do? And we went there and said, okay, well, this is different. This is going to be science-based. We'll bring the science. We'll give you the measures, the evidence. What you need to do is you need to commit your own leadership support for this. You need to commit at least 20% of a nurse's time and 10% of a physician's time to lead this. And you have to commit the resources to collect the data. Because at the end of the day, if we can't say that we've made a difference, we failed. And are you willing to do this? And they committed to it right from the very beginning when they saw the rates go down so quickly their engagement and support was just outstanding. They worked with the teams. They allocated resources for the teams. They made the teams very visible in their hospitals. And many of the the nurse and physician leaders of this product have now gone on to take leadership roles within their health systems for leading quality and safety efforts. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Peter Pronovo from John Hopkins University School of Medicine, discussing how he saved Michigan hospitals over $100 million. Dr. Why is something so simple not used more often? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is we haven't summarized evidence yet in healthcare in the form of checklists. The output of evidence summaries is typically practice guidelines that are elegant and often very robust, but they're 100 to 300 page documents that may have hundreds of decision nodes or conditional probabilities. And what we try to do is really prioritize and say, okay, no one thinks like that. Let's call out what are the five plus or minus two strongest things in this guideline that are supported by the evidence and that have the lowest barrier to use, and let's make them as a checklist. How much would it cost to implement your checklist in all the hospitals across the country? We estimate that it's probably somewhere around 3 to $4 million that we can put it in every hospital in the country. And and that money is really for the technical component of the work, to making sure that we have valid database to measure it, to put programs to summarize the evidence, to hold coaching calls. But it is absolutely scalable. I mean, there's no doubt that we can do this and we can do this in a large-scale way. You know, Susan, one of the things that I think healthcare needs is that our efforts to improve quality and safety have been very much like Brownian motion, that we go an inch deep and a mile wide, but we don't have many success stories. And what I think we need is to start going an inch wide and a mile deep and not only realize the benefits from, from the program, in this case reducing infections, but to build the capacity to learn how to work together, all the different stakeholders, so that we could make some profound progress and that healthcare begins to develop its own, what I call, polio campaign. You know, polio used to kill 350,000 people in the mid-'80s worldwide. Now it kills under 1,000, and that's in one small part of, of one country. And the reason is because we learned how to pull resources together, how to collaborate, how to make profound impact in changing healthcare. And 
quality and safety needs to do the same thing, that we can't address everything. We have to focus, learn how to work together, and then take that learning and apply it to the next ill that befalls us. How was Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan involved in the implementation of the checklists? Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan has worked very closely with the Hospital Association of Michigan to create incentive programs to get physicians and and hospitals to perform better. And once the program was up and running, we asked to include this program as part of the incentive that they already have with hospitals. And what we said is that, okay, let's incentivize hospitals through the incentive program you already have with Blue Cross Blue Shield to do this, but let's make it really practical. The first year is going to be they would get the incentive if they submit 90% of the data because, as we said, this has to be science-based. And at the end of the day, if we don't have valid rates of infections, it doesn't help us at all. Year two, we said, okay, let's hospitals will get the, the bonus if they're below the 25th percentile of infections. And as you saw from the results of the study, we blew that away. The whole state got it, which was great. I mean, the, the state average is now below the fifth, you know, right around the fifth percentile. And so I think aligning the payment incentives with quality improvement efforts are really needed in this country because oftentimes high quality of care hospitals take a financial loss. Who else has asked for your help? We have put the program in Rhode Island and we're just finalizing that analysis, but it looks like we have replicated the exact same results. And that was remarkable because it was every hospital in the whole state. It's a small state, but they they really pulled together to put this in the whole state, and the results are the same as Michigan, which is important because it shows it's generalizable. About half the hospitals in New Jersey put it in, and we're now in discussions with several other states. We're talking to Tennessee. Is, is We're helping to coach Tennessee put it in. Oregon and Nevada and Arizona are working to do it, and North Carolina Hospital Association is interested in doing it. Right now, it's still kind of a state-by-state commitment that we're looking to engage, and we'll hope we'll get some support at a federal level to say, hey, this thing works. It ought to be a national program. Who should listeners contact if they want to take the steps to initiate this in their state? I would say that probably their hospital association seems to be the best group to coordinate it because they pull all the hospitals together. So I would say either go to their hospital association or their Congress and senators to say, why aren't we doing this in our state? It saves money. It saves lives. It's sound science. And we need to begin to work together to do this. What other checklists have you developed to improve care for patients? We have a number of them. We have one for palliative care. We have one for sepsis. We have one for emergency medicine care. We're developing one for methicillin-resistant staph aureus prevention. And now we're just embarking one on surgical care to prevent wrong site surgery, to improve deep venous thrombosis prophylaxis, and prevent surgical site infections. Give us an example of the wrong site surgery checklist. So there's a number of them. The first thing is kind of a checklist in the pre-op center that says upstream, you can't come into the operating room unless absolutely every element on the consent and the operative posting are exactly the same because often we found that mistakes happen if there's some discrepancy in understanding what you're doing. When you come into the operating room, there's a checklist that says, okay, everybody introduce themselves by their first name and their role. That breaks down barriers of communication. Everybody then does the elements of the timeout that are put forward by the Joint Commission that says, 
okay, this is Mrs. Smith. We're going to do X operation. The consent has that. We have all the equipment that we need. Next part of that timeout says, do we have people who know how to use the equipment because we've seen a number of equipment errors and mistakes? And then the last question is really an open-ended question. It says, if something were to go wrong here, what would it be so that we get people proactively thinking about managing hazards. And then finally, we end with saying, you know, are there any other concerns that weren't discussed? Because again, what we found is that when things go wrong, often someone knew it was wrong in their mind, but either just didn't speak up or spoke up and wasn't listened to. Dr. Pronovo, thank you so much for joining us to discuss how you save Michigan hospitals over $100 million. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening.